we're going to be looking at Philippians chapter 4 as we draw our study of Philippians to its conclusion. Uh, I've asked Elise to put the scripture up this morning. It's a very simple scripture. We're going to look at two verses. Uh, for those of you visiting, we've been doing this uh, study on Philippians for many months now, uh, looking at how we can live joyfully as Christians, uh, how we can, in the midst of many challenges in the 21st century, what does the Bible say, and how we, how we can learn from what the Bible says to still live joyful lives uh, in spite of everything that the world um, pushes in on us. And so that wonderful scripture we looked at a couple of weeks ago, be anxious for nothing. You don't have to be anxious about anything, but we can rejoice in what God has done through, uh, through Jesus and uh, we can live a joyful Christian life. And that's really the main theme that we've been looking at over the last uh, number of months. So this couple of verses we're going to look at um, this morning, Paul writing and he says, finally, brothers and sisters, uh, whatever is true, Whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. And whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice. And the God of peace will be with you. What a beautiful promise. What an amazing promise. The God of peace will be with you. And so, as you if, uh, uh, just uh, uh, reflect a little bit on what Paul has been saying throughout this letter. Remember, he's been speaking a lot about the mind. He's been speaking a lot about having the right mentality. Remember in chapter 1, right at the beginning, verse 9, he prayed for the Corinthians and he said, that I pray that you'll be full of knowledge of all discernment. And so already his prayer, he was saying, I want you to think a little bit differently as a Christian. And remember in chapter 2, in verse 2, he says, when he's talking about unity, he says, I want to encourage you all to be like-minded. I want you to think in the same way, all of you as believers. In verse 5 of chapter 2, they were amazed, those amazing words, that you would have the same mentality, the same attitude as Jesus. Uh, whenever I read those words, I'm absolutely uh, challenged. Paul is saying, I want you to be like Jesus in your attitude, in the way that you think, your mentality, how you approach life. Be like Jesus. And also in chapter 3, remember in verse, four, uh, in verse 15, he says, if in any way you think your thinking is faulty, don't worry, God will show you. He'll reveal to you His will for your life. And so it seems to me one of the great themes, oh, there's the other thing I want to just point out. Remember Helen preached about those two ladies that were disagreeing in the church? And you know, remember even when Paul corrects that, what does he say to them? I want you to have the same attitude of mind as in Jesus. So even in his correction of behavior in the church, he's saying, he's not just saying behave well. He's not just rebuking them. He's saying, no, actually, when you fight with each other, the way that you resolve it is to think like Jesus and have the same attitude as Jesus. And then these earthly things start to be resolved. And so it seems to me that one of the great themes, certainly in, in Philippians, is about cultivating a Christian mind. It certainly is about joy. It certainly is about all those other things that we've looked at. But Paul is trying to encourage us, us as believers to develop a Christian way of thinking. 
How many of you know that our world is becoming increasingly secular and pagan? And if you want to live as a Christian in a secular and pagan world, you have to develop a Christian way of seeing the world that helps you navigate through all sorts of challenges. Amen? And so this letter is saying, Paul's saying over and over, I want to help you to think like a Christian, not like a pagan. Uh, you know, it's interesting, so much pressure on young people. And part of the problem is if you conform your mind all the time to images on Instagram of how your body should look and what you should be and what you should value, if that's your reference all the time and you're feeding your mind with that, you're going to experience some pressure when your body doesn't look like that. <laughs> I was given a Debenhams card as a gift for my birthday. I ended up in the Watford um, Store, trying on shirts under the white light and all the mirrors. And I came out, I said, Helen, I'm depressed. I actually look 55. <laughs> My body looks old. It's true, isn't it? We get under pressure because of what we allow to feed our minds. And Paul is saying, actually, no, 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 come on. You're not, don't be, don't be a pagan. I'm not using that to insult people, but don't think like a pagan. Pagans just think about their bodies and what they look like and how much money they make. Pagans think like that. You are not like that. You are a new creation in Christ. There's a whole new thing that's happened in your life. Your heart's been transformed. Your mind is being renewed, and there are eternal things. I want you to value people differently. I want you to understand the world differently. I want you to think like Jesus and be like Jesus, and Jesus is not really interested very much in Instagram. He's interested in your heart. He's interested in your mind. He's interested in how you value other people. He's interested in how you love other people. So be like him. Have his mind. And so, certainly true that as we live our lives, how we think compo composes a, a major part of who we really are. And uh, there's a wonderful evangelist, American guy called Jonathan Edwards. You might have heard of him. But he said this. He put it this way. The ideas and images in men's minds are the invisible power that constantly governs, governs them. He's saying the same thing, isn't he? He's saying what we really think, what we hold in our mind is valuable. It begins to govern how we live and how we think. And so one of the most helpful things I've learned over the years about the Christian life is that all sin, all outward behavior that is not what God ha has for us, it begins in our hearts, doesn't it? And the, and the Bible uses that language. It's, it, it, it's, it says we, these things are cultivated in our hearts, in other words, in our minds, our hearts. And then once they have germinated, we start to act on them. And so you get um, Jesus saying this very plainly uh, in Mark chapter 7. He says, that which proceeds out of a man is what defiles a man. From within, out of the heart of men, produces the evil thoughts, thefts, murder, fornication, adultery, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. Jesus says all of these evil things proceed from within and defile what is out from on the outside. So this thing of the outward sins first finding germination in the mind, in the heart. And certainly if you and I want to grow in godly living in an increasingly challenging culture, we have to win a battle in our minds about what we value, about what we think about, what we, what we honor in our minds so it can become life-giving to us. 
and it's interesting to me as I've reflected on this letter, do you notice this? That um, Paul is saying in chapter 4, if you want to have healthy relationships in the church in particular, develop and maintain a Christian mind. Uh, I get that from Philippians 4 verse 2. He also says in chapter 4 that having a joyful life is integral to that, is developing a Christian mind. If you want to know joy and peace in chapter 4, and you want to rejoice in all things, well, how do you do that? You begin to develop a Christian way of viewing life. And so the basis of our behavior must be formulated in how we think and how we respond to every situation. So we, before I, I kind of look at those things of love, joy, peace, and patience, I just want to, I feel like I do need to do this because what Paul is, I want to say what Paul is not teaching, all right? Because our culture, and particularly church culture, has imbibed a lot from various things that are not biblical. And this is what I want to say. Paul is not teaching the power of positive thinking. He's not teaching that. You see, that teaching has developed over the recent years, was birthed by a guy called Norman, Norman Vincent Peale. And then there have been slight variations of those kind of teachings through people like Robert Schuller. Have you ever heard of Robert Schuller? He had a big cathedral in America called the Crystal, um, Crystal Cathedral. And it's been taken on by other people more recently, like Joel Alstein, Kriefer Dollar, Jesse DePlantis, these kind of people. And I want to say to you quite bluntly this morning that their teaching is not Christian in the orthodox sense, even though they have been welcomed largely in evangelical circles. Through their influence in the American church in particular and through the American church to the rest of the world, there's this thinking that's coming to the church that Christians can never be negative or critical, that somehow that is not godly. And for me, it's very painful because it has resulted in the, uh, a loss of discernment in the church. And uh, I recently, well, not recently, a number of years ago, I had a number of people that were part of this church that left this church because they said I was too negative in teaching about suffering. That actually Christians don't suffer. I want to just say to you, you are bizarre in your thinking, and that is not Christian thinking. <laughs> that is bizarre. In this world, said Jesus, you will have many troubles, but do not do not, do not worry because I've overcome the world. Amen? It seems to me that people like that don't ignore completely the life of Jesus. They ignore also every other person like the apostles or anyone else in, in church history who's ever counted for God has gone through suffering and hardship and trial. Come on now. How, how, if we're going to be like Jesus, how can we expect we're not going to have some hard things to overcome in our lives? And so it seems to me also that people that have this kind of thing of you can never speak about negative things or you always have to be positive, uh, that they don't seem to understand that both Paul and Jesus were sometimes quite negative and critical of bad things. Hello. What did, what did um, Clive so wonderfully remind us of a couple of weeks ago? Jesus plats a whip goes into the temple where all the buyers and sellers are in the temple, where they've come from the outer courts into the inner court of the temple. And he is angry, and he whips, and he overturns tables, and he's negative, and he's critical of their behavior, and he says, you have desecrated this house. This was a house of prayer for all nations, and you've made it into a buying marketplace. Come on. 
Jesus had his fair things to show, say about the Pharisees. What did he say? Oh, guys, you've got a little bit wrong. Let me help you. You brood of vipers, you wicked men, you are all white on the outside and on the inside you smell like rotten bones. You smell like a fart, he said to Jesus, to the Pharisees. Of course, that's the language. That's what he's saying. You're all white and all kind of holy on the inside and inside it is smelly, rotten bones on the inside. Oh, Jesus, don't be so critical. And so let's not lose all sense of discernment as we walk our Christian lives. And this, unfortunately, there's a kind of metamorphosis of this idea that we can't be, um, we must always be positive. And so there's a thing that you might have also been exposed to of positive confession of health and wealth. And that, this is, the, this is the, why I say it is a, uh, a heresy, because it says if you declare anything positively by faith, God has to do it. And it's, it's a heresy because it attributes power to the faith rather than to Jesus. And so I've been exposed over many years to people walking around churches saying that they are healed when they are obviously sick. Come on. What is that? That is madness. That is not what the Bible teaches about healing. You can declare as many times as you like that you're healed, and if you're obviously sick, you're not healed. Come on. Sorry, am I sounding angry this morning? I don't mean to sound angry, all right? And so we've even had things like, um, you know, if you want to do well in business, you must imagine yourself as a positive uh, salesperson. Imagine that you are, think positively now that you are wealthy and successful and you will become wealthy and successful if you just think positively. This is not Christian thinking. This is not what Paul is talking about. And all of these errors can be traced back to other things that are not biblical. And certainly Philippians 4 verse 8 does not support that way of thinking. Have you, have you kind of got my heart this morning? That is not what Paul means when he says... Develop a Christian mind. Okay? So what is Paul saying? What he is teaching is that all of our Christian um, thought life should be focused on the great truths of Scripture. That's what he's saying. He says if you want to live a Christian life, develop a thought life around all that the Scripture says is wonderful and noble. And that's how the Bible teaches Christian godliness. And I've been a little bit anxious this morning when I was driving in the car because I was thinking, God, how am I going to preach this this morning? Because all this whole bunch of Christians that go around saying that you have to behave like this and do this, and if you don't do that, you're going to hell, and there's all this kind of legalism in the church, and I don't want people to get that when I preach this. I want you to get freedom. I want you to get love and joy, and I want you to, get, I want you to love Jesus more after this message than when I started and that would inspire you to live in a different way. That's how the Bible teaches godliness. When I read, read the New Testament and the Bible, I don't see Paul and Jesus emphasizing the law very much. I don't see them emphasizing rules very much. What I do see is that they emphasize loving the Holy Spirit. Love the Holy Spirit. Love Jesus. It will automatically change how you behave. And so... 
when we read verse 8 and 9, this is what I see. I see a great invitation here from Paul that you and I would think for ourselves. That we'd learn to develop a, a thinking mind in that under the power of the Holy Spirit, we will automatically recognize for ourselves without anyone telling us what is pure and noble and lovely and righteous. That you would know it in your knower as you live your life. That as you're facing different things and you see different things, automatically your default would be, Holy Spirit, is this lovely, pure, righteous, and true? Should I fix my mind on this? Are you with me? And so what does Paul say? First thing, uh, all there, just very, very simple. Whatever is true, what does that mean? Well, it means, the Greek there just simply means true as to fact. It means as similar to what God is. In other words, God is true, and it's as similar as what God is. It's the opposite of lies. It's the opposite of deceit. And obviously, the Bible teaches that God himself is the only final test for truth. He's unchanging, and what he has for people doesn't change over the ages. Uh, it is constant. His nature is constant, and it applies to every culture and every age that God is true. John 3 attests that. John 8, Romans 3, verse 4. And I'm not wanting to insult anyone here who's Greek, all right? Greeks, please forgive me. But uh, Paul writes to, to Titus. And I've, I've always found um, this very interesting. And, and, and here, uh, uh, Titus lived in Crete. And in that, unfortunately, in that day, the Cretans were notorious liars. They had a reputation for lying. That's just kind of how the culture was. And so what does Paul say? He says when he writes to, um, to Titus, he says, no, Titus, God cannot lie. He has made his truth known to you, Titus 1, uh, verse 1 to 3, and therefore tell the Cretans, the Cretans not to lie. They're no longer like that. Their culture says it's okay to lie, but actually the life of Christ is in them now. So as they looked at Jesus, must stop lying. Are you with me? Jesus claimed himself that he was the truth, John 7. And the Bible also teaches that the author of every lie is the evil one, the devil, uh, John 8. He's the deceiver, and he wants to deceive us through our minds. And so as we are prone to, to doing the wrong thing sometimes and not the right thing, um, the way to counter that is to develop this Christian mind that I'm trying to get us to see this morning, that we know the Word of God so well that we automatically run it as a grid in every area of our lives. I also want to say this, that our culture particularly is geared towards emotion and strongly influenced by uh, the virtue of tolerance, and this is what it, our culture assume, assumes. It assumes that love automatically means being tolerant and accepting everybody's behavior in every way, even if the Word of God plainly says something else. And so, my friends, for, for us to live as Christians right now, it's going to take courage. It's going to take courage by the Holy Spirit to lovingly stand for what is true without giving in. Loving people, absolutely. Accepting everyone, absolutely, but lovingly standing for what is true. Okay, and also our, our culture is increasingly pragmatic. What I mean by that, and what it simply says, it teaches that what works is true. So if it works for you, it must be true. And even if it brings you uh, momentary happiness, it's, it's still true. Well, 
that simply doesn't line up with God's word either because God's word says that often sin brings pleasure to us for a season. That's why we like it because it, it kind of, we get pleasure from it and that's why it can entice us for a season. But we can't just be pragmatic because we're going to end up doing stuff that actually God doesn't want us to be doing. And so Paul, the first way he encourages us is think on whatever is true. Can you just think about that for your own life? What are the true things that God has shown you? What, what, what do you know to be true of Him in your life? Paul says, think about that. Meditate on that. Love that. Everything that is true. Secondly, what does he say? He says, think on whatever is noble. Some translations say honorable. Some say noble. That simply means, again, the Greek simply means anything that inspires reverence, anything that inspires dignity and is worthy of respect, anything that is the opposite of vulgar, thoughtless, and careless. Yeah? That's what it means to think on what is noble. And it's interesting to me in, in Timothy, 1 Timothy um, 3, what, um, what Paul says when he's talking about leadership in the church, um, it's a character trait he says that we should, have, we should see in those that serve in the church, in deacons and deaconesses, um, uh, the, those that serve in the church that they should be honorable. In other words, they shouldn't be vulgar. They shouldn't be, they, sh they should inspire reverence. They should inspire dignity in, 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 through their lives. And so he talks about, um, that's how we should, we should see that and how we raise our kids, etc., etc. And uh, I love what uh, he says in Timothy again, 1 Timothy 2 verse 2. Paul says, all Christians should lead a life that is tranquil and quiet in godliness and dignity. And so that does mean that we take life seriously, but it does, certainly doesn't mean that we, we, um, we don't have any fun or we can't enjoy life in a wonderful way. But it, it means that basically the tone, the tenor of our hearts is that actually we are thinking of the eternal and what God has for us in eternity. And that, that informs everything we do. We're thinking of those noble things. Those, I love that, that song we sang this morning, uh, uh, the last song we sang. I can't remember the lyrics. What are they, Jack? On the final day when he welcomes me in. That one? Yeah. It's beautiful, isn't it? Why? Wow, it's saying this eternal thing that informs all of our lives, every way that we live, the values that we have right now is informed by eternity. Everything that is noble, everything that is lovely, everything that is just is the third thing. Uh, and this is the interesting thing, everything that is right. And who says he is right? God says he is right. <laughs> God says he is righteousness. Jesus says he is himself is righteousness. There are myriad scriptures I could point you to. And so to think on what is right simply means to reflect on the holy nature of God, who Jesus is, who God is, and to model our behavior and everything that flows out of our lives as we think on that. Do you get it? You hear what I'm trying to say this morning? It's not about rules and regulations. It's about loving Christ. It's about uh, thinking of more of who God is, what He's done, reflecting on the beauty of who He is. And as we do that, automatically our lives start to change. Think on whatever is pure. Pure. Again, here the Greek is referring to what, in their context, uh, ceremonially pure for the Jews. But it reflects also on moral purity. And it's very interesting to me because obviously 
just uh, think of the context of Paul writing. Initially, uh, he was writing to mainly Jewish people. But by the time we get churches in Ephesus and Corinth and Philippi, who's getting saved? It's not a trick question. Gentiles are getting saved by the hundreds. And all these Gentiles have come out of pagan practices. If you go and read anything of history, you'll read that often uh, pagan cultures, uh, they were fit for t- fertility gods and goddesses, and so ritual prostitution was part of how you worshipped at the temple, and there's all this kind of lifestyle stuff that happened because of pagan thinking and pagan culture and pa- pagan worship. And so what Paul is saying here is, is just saying, actually, no, you're no longer like that pagan people that you once were. So think on what is pure, what is lovely. Think on what is pure and let that inform how you behave sexually. Yes? And I want to say to you again that we are, uh, you know, someone said to me the other, uh, many months ago, oh, you know, the problem with Christians is that they're on the wrong side of history. You're on the wrong side of history. Everything's changed. You're on the wrong side. <laughs> you can't hold on to things, those things anymore. History has changed. Oh, I want to say to you, do you know even the history? Have you read any history? Christians have never been on the right side of history, ever. The Romans, Christians, you're on the wrong side of history, throw you to the lions. The Greeks, you're on the wrong side. Christians, you're on the wrong side of history, you don't think correctly. We oppose you. The Christians have never been, they've always been apart. Why? Because the scripture says you are called to be holy, not like everyone else. Not valuing things that pagans value, valuing things that God loves. And so think on what is everything that is pure. And my friends, can I just kindly say to you, in our culture, sexual purity is not valued by anyone. Pornography is rampant, multiple sexual encounters, people don't even blink anymore. You know the deal. I don't have to tell you. What does Paul say? He just simply says in Ephesians, don't let immorality, impurity, or greed even be named amongst you. He's not talking to the the unsaved. He's talking to those that are in Christ. He's talking to the Ephesian Christians, and he's saying it's not proper amongst saints because there mustn't be any filthiness and, and coarse joking. That's not fitting. But rather give thanks. For this you know with certainty that no impure person or covetous man who's an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of God. He's saying if you are saved, your inheritance is not in those things. Your inheritance is in in something completely different and you can't be thinking like that pagan thinking anymore. And my friends, you and I, we can't be thinking like that anymore. We want the church to be different because Christ has something different for us. Are you encouraged? (laughs) Let's not think like that anymore. No, let's throw that off. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. What does Paul say? uh, Fifthly, think on whatever is lovely. This is interesting. It's the only time Paul uses this word in the entire New Testament, the Greek here. And it simply means pleasing, agreeable, attractive. What creates love? What creates favor? Amen? Think on whatever creates love, whatever creates favor. Dwell on that. Meditate on that. Anything that is pure and lovely and attractive and creates uh, agreement, think on that. Meditate on that. And I love it that we sing about Jesus, our lovely Savior. 
Why? Because he's altogether lovely, isn't he? He's altogether worthy. And so as we think on him, we start to transform our mind and we start to live differently. Think lastly, he says in this list, six words, of whatever is admirable. And that simply means in the Greek again, what, that what deserves or enjoys a good reputation. And what is Paul really saying here in 1 Corinthians 13? He says a similar things, And he says, he says, love believes the best of everyone. Isn't that amazing? Love believes the best about everyone, about another person. Um, and so what he's trying to say is that in the church, you think the best of people. You, you, don't, you don't kind of believe gossip until, until there's some grounds for that thing being true. You always think the best of everyone because that's what love does. And I would encourage you, that's how we should be living. Thinking the best of people until there's something that we have to deal with that might prove that not to be true. And then lastly, um, do you notice that Paul says at the end, he says, whatever you've, uh, uh, there, um, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy. So he's, he's already listed six things which he wants us to think about. And now he's kind of summarizing and he's saying, in summary, if anything is excellent. So if there's anything that I've left out, right, <laughs> if there, that is excellent, think about that as well. And if anything is praiseworthy, in other words, of those six things, if I've left something out and I haven't thought about it, anything that is praiseworthy, think about that as well. So it's like he's saying, in summary, to sum it all up and to add, I want you to think on what is excellent. And the word there, excellent, has to do with what is of good moral virtue. It's the only time that Paul uses the words. It's used often in Greek literature to describe other things, but it's the only time in the New Testament here that Paul uses the word. Whatever is excellent. Peter uses it as well. In 2 Peter verse 1, as a quality that God wants to add to our lives after we are saved. Uh, you can read it for yourself. That there's excellence that comes into our, our lives. And so we need to think on that. And lastly, Anything that is worthy of praise, think on these things. And so I want to say this to you, that um, in our culture, we should daily reflect on how marvelous and praiseworthy God is, is, but also towards other people. You know, everyone is capable of kindness and goodness and caring and love. Even, you know, people that don't know Christ are not Christians there are many wonderful people that know, care, and love and express that through their lives. And that's a beautiful thing that needs to be celebrated. That's God's common grace to all of creation that any of us can know those things. And so we to celebrate that. Always appreciating and affirming people towards Christ rather than being negative or critical. And Paul says this is what we should think about. If there's anything that we see that is worthy and praiseworthy, that points to God anyway. So you celebrate. Celebrate the good that you see. In, in wherever you see it, celebrate it. Whatever person you see it in, celebrate it and let ultimately it point to Jesus. Think on these things. What does he mean when he says think on these things, meditate on these things? Well, he's simply saying give them weight in your life when you make decisions. Allow them to shape your life, your conduct. That's what it means to think on them. You meditate on them, and then they begin to shape your actions, and there's a weight in your life that shapes how you behave. And then lastly, he appeals. Do you see how he appeals to obedience? He doesn't say, 
you will do this and you will follow these rules or else you're going to the hot place. Does he say that? He never teaches like that. The New Testament does not teach like that. He says, he appeals to them. He invites them. He asks them. He says, whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me. I, he's saying that you should see this in my life. And if you've seen this in my life, as I've lived openly before you, if you've seen any of this in me, put it into practice. That's how we live. Don't go around pointing fingers at other people. You go around living your life openly, joyfully, as a Christian, pointing people to Christ, and then you can say with integrity, if you've seen this in me, put it into practice. That's how Paul teaches. And here is the great promise. I love this. And the God of peace will be with you. How many of you want peace? I want it with all of my heart. Do you notice that in the New Testament, God's saving grace is unconditional. His love is unconditional. He loves us. We sang about it this morning. Sons and daughters dead in our sin, and He saved us and He loves us. But do you also notice this, that many of the great promises in the Christian life are conditional? Do you notice that? This is conditional. If you want peace, there's the and there. And the peace of God will be with you. In other words, if you cultivate this kind of thinking, if you live in this way, if you think like this, if you give yourself to purity and loveliness and praiseworthiness and everything that is noble and pure, if you give yourself to that, what will be the result of all of that? Peace. Want, want peace? Got to feed our minds in the right way with all that God has for us. I'll put it this way. Thinking is followed by doing. What is Paul, the great challenge of the Christian life is, is that, um, you know, when Paul says rejoice uh, earlier, um, he was really saying that uh, obedience um, is, uh, the result of obedience will be joy in our lives. And the great challenge for us, obviously, as Christians, is to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And that's the hard part, isn't it? We can know things doctrinally we can understand that Jesus has saved us but the real challenge comes as we live to work out our lives with our salvation with fear and trembling that's the hard part and that's what Paul is really is talking about here thinking is followed by doing if you've seen this in me says Paul if you've seen it in Epaphroditus if you've seen it in Timothy if you've seen it in anyone if you've watched this and observed this in my life and uh, now you do the same study think pray and then do it and if you fall down, if you make a mistake, don't beat yourself up. Get up again. And once again, live a life of practical obedience. And the great, great, great promise is that the peace of God will be with you. What a great promise. What a wonderful Savior we have. That we can walk by the Spirit. We can joyfully serve Him. We can know peace. And boy, do we need peace. Yeah? Amen.